You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Hoping that you had the opportunity to think through some of the things that we talked about last week with goal setting and uh, looking forward to the end of this year already and anticipating things that we want to be able to do then that we currently cannot do now. Um, hope that you will continue to be faithful to examine how to use this upcoming year uh, for the most glory possible uh, for Christ's kingdom. In Genesis chapter 22, we come to, again, one of those familiar stories about Abraham um, as we begin to wrap up our discussion on his narrative in the book of Genesis. We come to Genesis chapter 22 and we'll begin Reading in verse 1 this morning, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is obviously a familiar story to us. I hope that we can point out some details that maybe oftentimes get missed in the reading and teaching of this passage. Um, I think it's probably worth noting in an interesting way here that this is the back end of Abraham's life and the thing that he's often most remembered for is something that happened in his latter years. It's a reminder to us that there's never a point in our life where God stops using us, where God stops working in us, nor is there ever a time in our life where God says your faith has reached the point that it needs to be at. He continues to grow our faith. He continues to strengthen our faith, both as a young believer and as an old believer. Uh, both in age and in years being a Christian. God continues to work in and through us, and he continues to put us in positions where our faith is uh, needed to increase. And so uh, this story, this narrative, again, once again, reminds us of that type of truth. 
um, this morning. I'm going to give you our summary sentence for today, if I can get it to um, pop up on our screen this morning. All right, our summary sentence for today is that God's promises are designed to empower the believer with obedient faith during times of trial, showing one's faith to be genuine. We're going to connect today's narrative to the book of James and how uh, James draws upon this story as evidence of Abraham's true salvation. We know that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed him decades before he was ever asked to sacrifice Isaac. So Abraham has been reconciled and has been uh, declared righteous for years. But James draws upon this narrative as uh, solid proof, solid evidence that one who may confess to be a Christian, one who may confess to believe, be a believer, has truly demonstrated their faith in the God they claim to trust. God's promises are designed to empower the believer with obedient faith during times of trial, showing one's faith to be genuine. We learn here that God tested Abraham. Abraham, all through this account, draws upon the promises of God to allow him to persevere through this trial, to respond in an obedient way all through the trial. And the result of how he handles this trial is that he demonstrates his faith to be genuine. Uh, Some introductory things just to kind of share you with to set the stage for us. This is the first mention of love in the book of Genesis. You'll remember we've talked... Obviously, the book of Genesis is an origin book, so it's constantly bringing up first things to us. This is the first mention of love in Scripture to us, and it's, it's probably worth noting that when it initially brings out the concept of love, it's done so through the relationship between a father and a son. Not that that's obviously the only way that love can be understood, but it's probably important for us to understand how God continues to show love in the New Testament as he relates to us as father Uh, And a father who gives and sacrifices his son, a son that he loves very much. And so God begins to build that understanding for us, right? John 3, 16, that God loved the world and he sacrificed his son for the world. We can can resonate with how how, uh, that concept works all the way back here in Genesis. The first introduction of the concept of love is between a father and a son. Abraham, give me your son, your one son, your only son, the son that you love. The entire story, I believe, prefigures the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. And we're going to see some of that correlation in this story. Obviously, a father being willing to sacrifice his son sets the stage for what we understand Calvary to be all about. But there's some other additional details here that point us to our understanding of Christ. And I think it's worth mentioning that over and over in this chapter, the relationship of father and son is emphasized, really to the point of overemphasis. We never lose track that we're talking about a daddy and his son that are having to walk this mountain together, um, that are being called to do something that challenges really both of their faiths. And we're going to see that while Abraham is the, uh, the key figure in this story, beyond what, what God is revealing about himself, Abraham is the key human figure in this story, that Isaac's faith is also demonstrated as well in how he interacts with this and how he submits himself to this. Um, and so both these individuals are demonstrating great faith in how this story plays out. This is another thing that has been asked of Abraham to be sacrificed in a long list of things in his life. Um, He's been asked to sacrifice both land and kindred when he was first asked to leave his hometown. 
um, a place where he had probably built an inheritance. He had built a lot of business relationships. He had uh, planned to inherit everything that his father would leave to him potentially. He's been asked to sacrifice those things. He's been asked to sacrifice his nephew Lot in that they were to break fellowship and to separate. Um, we've, we've seen that he was asked to give up the best land, that he sacrificed the plains of Jordan and gave those to Lot. He sacrificed the spoils uh, of war that were offered to him. And then in chapter 21, he sacrificed and gave up his other son, Ishmael. Um, and it's easy for us to, to read this and say, ah, he probably didn't love Ishmael that much. He really loved Isaac. I think really when you read up to chapter 22, he dearly loved Ishmael. Didn't matter who his mom was. He loved his son because for, we estimated 13, 14, maybe 15 years, Isaac wasn't on the scene yet. And so he had invested everything in this son, a son that he had waited years for. Ishmael was, was a hard thing to give up. Um, maybe even harder than having to kill him was to, to let him go and not know what would become of him, right? Um, sometimes some of us have broken relationships. It would really almost be easier on the heart if that person was no longer here on this earth than to know they are here, to know they get up every day and don't talk to us, don't interact with us, don't demonstrate any love towards us. Some of us have those type of relationships. It would almost be easier for the healing process to know they've gone ahead and gone on before us. He lets Ishmael go, and he says, I'm going to let Ishmael grow up, and he's going to produce a great nation. So in Abraham's mind, he knows there's a son out there that he loves dearly that he'll never see again because of the conflict it was creating with Isaac. Abraham's constantly being asked to give up things, but obviously Isaac becomes the most difficult one. Um, it's the, the crux of all the other things that have been given up. He is now being asked to give up his final son, his last son, his one and true son with his wife the son that he loves dearly. Abraham's asked to travel to Mount Moriah to do this. Um, I did a little bit of research to find that most estimations would place this location between 30 to 50 miles from where he was currently located. Any, any reasons that maybe we could think of as to why God would ask him to travel so far to perform this sacrifice? Any thoughts on why he would be called to travel so far? Okay. Harder to turn back. Because there was mountains around. We've seen him offering sacrifices in, in multiple places. It's not that this was the only place to offer a sacrifice. Okay, yeah, not, not the opportunity to have a knee-jerk reaction. Okay, God, you're asking me to do this. I'm going to do it as quick as possible to get it over with. There's a, there's a drawn-out aspect to it where Abraham has to really process God just really asked me to do this, and I can't do it right now. I have to wait until I get there. That's a three-day journey before I can actually carry through with this. A lot of time to think about what he's actually being asked to do. On the flip side, I would say it's also a lot of time for him to reach a resolution in his life that he should do this. So a lot of time to think about the grief that, that's going to happen in giving up his son but also increased time for him to really evaluate the God that he believes in that's asked him to do this. It's a soul-searching time, I believe, for Abraham as he's cutting wood and, and loading up the donkey and making preparations. Every step of that is a sign of faith. But also, every step of that is an opportunity for him to think about promises that were made. And we're going to see that in meditating on those promises, it leads him to make some definitive statements about what will happen 
when he actually gets there. Any other thoughts as to why he would have to travel so far to do this? Okay. Yep. Yeah, an opportunity to be separated, one from Sarah, who would have, I imagine, uh, opposed this move. Um, and, And she has demonstrated in the past to not always be completely in line with what God was wanting to do through Abraham when she suggests that he have a baby with Hagar. So he's removed from her sphere of influence to possibly change his mind and sway him. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, so jumping way ahead, in verse 1 it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. It's interesting to note that this is the location that the temple would eventually be placed upon. The temple where sacrifices would be made uh, here near Jerusalem. We also know that Christ is crucified near Jerusalem. And so he's actually calling Abraham to take his son to a location where sacrifices will become the norm for God's people. And eventually the ultimate sacrifice will come that will alleviate the need for the temple, that will alleviate the need for any future sacrifices. So this is the first kind of mandated sacrifice by God upon his people, bring me your son. We realize later in this story that really Isaac becomes a living sacrifice versus a dead sacrifice. He's allowed to live and and is spared from being killed. But this becomes a place of death for the people of Israel. The, The temple, the tabernacle we know in the wilderness It changes locations because they're constantly wandering. When it's finally time to solidify God's presence and the sacrifice system, it takes place here. Uh, Potentially in the very spot. I don't don't know. Um, But at least within within, uh, uh, close distance to where Abraham would have been called to sacrifice his son Isaac. And then because of the vicinity with Jerusalem, I believe within, again, the vicinity of where Christ would one day um, actually be sacrificed by his father. Um, So interesting to note that God wanted to correlate that for us abraham was not currently living there but he is asked to go there to perform this task some things i think that we we can note here in in this narrative a narrative again that we are probably uh, a lot of us are very familiar with but some things that i would like for us to take away from the text this morning first of all is that we should expect tests from god after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a, as a burnt offering. We're told right off the bat here so that we understand the context of everything else that happens in this chapter, that this is divinely ordained. This is a request from God, and there's a purpose behind it. God is not just asking him to do something arbitrarily. He is asking him to do something with a purpose. He is asking him to do something that will ultimately test the faith of Abraham. And we're no, we know in the New Testament that we are also uh, encouraged to expect and to recognize the possibility of trials in our own life. Uh, God stretches our faith, allowing it to grow stronger. Now that's, that's how our faith gets uh, increased. God puts us in situations, he brings things into our life that necessitates our faith go further than it's previously gone. He stretches our faith. He puts us in positions where our faith has to become stronger in him. This is obvious situation where Abraham has trusted in God, he's believed God, but he's really being put to the test here. Does he believe in God? Does he trust in God more than the things that God has given him? Right? The promise has finally come to Abraham. He finally has a son from his wife, 
will he now trust in the promise more than the one who made the promise? The test is, does he really have faith in God? The word can also be translated as tempted. We know from James that God does not tempt us in, uh, in sinful ways, so it can also be translated as tested. Um, I put in my notes here that uh, there's two supernatural beings, obviously, that bring testings and temptations into our life. Satan tempts to destroy. Satan tempts to destroy. He designs things to bring out our worst. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we're cautioned about Satan and his forces and their workings in and around us. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Satan oftentimes brings things in our life to bring out our worst, to destroy us. God uses those things for good. Um, So Satan attempts to destroy, God tests to strengthen. God has purpose in his testing. He tests us to strengthen. In um, Exodus chapter 20, Verse 20, God talking to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you. That the fear of him may be before you. That you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. God tests us to strengthen us. He designs things to bring out our best. Abraham's faith is stretched to the limit and he holds firm. You'll remember we've said that Abraham is kind of the the example used in scripture of what it looks like to have faith in God. He's the the example of what it really means to be a Christian, someone who who, uh, has their relationship founded upon faith, someone who demonstrates that their salvation is true by the way they live and how their faith is proven through works. So Abraham is, is, is used in the New Testament constantly as the example. This is what it looks like to be saved. This is what it looks like to be justified by faith. We can then trust that this is also an example of what it looks like to be tested, what it looks like to have our faith strengthened, but also to have our faith challenged and, uh, and, and stretched. And, and it's, it's a difficult thing for Abraham. I don't think in any way that he woke up and was thrilled to do this and was just bubbling over with the prospects of being able to offer his son on an altar and having to kill his son before himself. I don't think he was looking forward to this by any means. So this was a difficult situation that he's put into. And I think he had to wrestle very hard in his heart to carry through with this. Human sacrifice would have been familiar to Abraham. This was part of Canaanite culture. We learned this from archaeology and things that that, uh, they're finding about Canaanite culture during his time. So this is not something that would have been completely foreign to him. Um, This would not have been a completely unexpected, unheard of type behavior. It would have been from the God that he's trusted in, but from the other people around him, what he's seen and witnessed from other religious practices, this would have looked very common potentially. Again, a deviation from what he knows about the God that he worships, but not a completely uncommon practice during that time. Abraham's greatest test came after he had received God's promise. Would he keep trusting God? Abraham's test is a call to act against common sense, 
natural affection, and lifelong hope. He's called to sacrifice his will and his wisdom. Abraham's thinking, this is everything that I've waited for. This is Isaac. You've promised him to me. My will is that he would continue to live and that he would be the the promised one. In Abraham's wisdom, he's thinking, how does this possibly work out as a good thing? He has to sacrifice more than just his son. He has to lay down his will, his plans, his wisdom about this to carry through in the way that he does. Sometimes in our own Christian lives, we're asked to bear the unbearable. There are times when we hear of circumstances. There are times when we've gone through circumstances that we want to classify as something that's completely unbearable. We hear stories of, of, of Christian people, godly people that seem to be faithfully doing what God has called them to do. And they go through tragedies. They go through difficulties. And we think, how, how are they going to do that? How are they going to carry through in the midst of that? Um, God calls us at times to bear the unbearable, to increase our faith in him. He calls us at times to do what seems unreasonable. It may seem unreasonable to quit a job that you love greatly and to sell things that are dear to you, to move to another country to share Christ with people that do not know him. Or potentially worse yet, have people already there sharing things that are not true about him. So we send people to Uganda, not into a place that is completely unreached in that they've never heard of Christ. We are sending people to an area of Uganda that have unfortunately heard false things about Christ. Many people go to places where they've never been exposed to the name of Jesus. And there's a starting point for how to reach those people. One of Chris's great concerns when he was first exposed to this area of Uganda is that these people have been exposed to a false Christ. They know the name of Jesus. They just don't worship the same Jesus we do. They expect different things from him than what we know God's word teaches. It may seem unreasonable to give up things here to go there. God calls us to do those type of things. He also expects us to expect what seems impossible. Abraham's been doing that most of his life. Expecting a baby when he's far beyond the age of having children with his wife. We're going to see now that he expects the impossible as well, that if he carries through with this sacrifice, he expects God to raise Isaac from the dead. We should expect tests from God as we move forward into 2016 as well. And it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how much you've done in the past. It doesn't matter how strong your faith is today. We should expect situations this year that will challenge our faith in new ways and stretch our faith in new ways. No matter where we fall on the spectrum of immaturity to maturity in our Christian faith. We should expect new situations this year that will stretch all of us. Secondly, we should strive for immediate obedience. Lest we read too quick through the beginning here, I think it's worth noting how quickly and faithfully Abraham responds to what God has called him to. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. There's immediate obedience that takes place here with Abraham. I think the immediate obedience helps drive his continued obedience for the next three days. He doesn't linger. He doesn't question. He doesn't argue. We've seen that he's capable of having conversations with God. We've seen those conversations and how he's, he said, God, don't, don't kill Sodom if there's 10 righteous people there. We've seen that type of interaction. We've seen that he argued for Eleazar. Uh, is Eleazar going to be my heir? We saw that he argued for Ishmael to be his heir. 
You know, I love Ishmael. Let's just let him be the promised child. He's had those interactions before. We don't see any response from Abraham except immediate obedience. And I think that's important. He commits to being obedient from the very beginning. And I think that helps drive him through the whole situation to constantly be obedient moving forward. He rises early in the morning. We don't see him sleeping in, right? We don't see him saying, oh, man, we've got to go to Mount Moriah. That's a three-day journey. I've got to kill my son. I'm just going to stay in bed. I don't want to think about this. You know, how many of us want to retreat when we find ourselves in a situation that's testing our faith, right? When we're going through a difficult time, a lot of times sleep is what we desire most when we don't have to think about it, when we don't have to put faith and trust in something. Abraham gets up early the next morning. He rises early and he immediately goes to work. I think it's worth noting too, most commentators say the reason that he's cutting wood and packing wood and bringing wood is that he didn't know if there would be wood where he got to the, when he got to the place that God wanted him to do this. Think about that. It would have been real convenient to get to Mount Moriah and say, you know, I'd love to do this. I can't find any wood. I, I can't do it, God. I, I want to, but I can't. Alas, there's no wood here. No, Abraham says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to plan to be obedient. Remember we talked how he had previously been planning to be disobedient with his wife? Hey, this is how we're going to handle it. When people question your identity, my identity, are we brother, sister, are we husband, wife, let's lie about it, and we'll do this every time we encounter this situation. We said besetting sins are sins that we are planning to continue to do. We don't take harsh measures to cut it out of our life. Abraham's taking measures here to be obedient. He's planning to be obedient. He says, I may get to that situation and the circumstances would dictate me to be disobedient. So I'm actually going to make sure that when I'm in that situation, in that setting, I have everything that I need to be obedient. Think about that in terms of besetting sins that you've been hopefully been thinking through for your own life. Not just planning not to sin, but planning to be obedient. Your, your situation's unique, so it's hard for me to get into real-life application here. But are there situations in your life, places where you're prone to sin, sins that you're prone to carry out? Are there things that you can plan when you're in those situations that assure your obedience? Not just planning to not sin. I'm going to stop planning to sin. I'm actually going to plan to be obedient. He's planning to be obedient here. He's taking measures before he ever leaves his house to make sure he has everything needed, fire, Wood. I think it's interesting too that he doesn't bring an animal. Right? In the back of his mind, he's saying, Maybe we get there and maybe this is just a big test. Maybe it's a trick. Maybe maybe I get to offer an animal. I'm gonna bring one just in case. Maybe God changes his mind. We get there. God sees that I'm willing to travel thirty to fifty miles to do this. Um, I'm gonna bring an animal that we can sacrifice. He doesn't do that. He doesn't bring a backup plan. He's all in. I'm going to be obedient. God's called me to do this. I'm going to do it all out. And I'm not going to bring a backup plan to fall back on. And I'm not going to hope that when I get there, I don't have the tools needed to be obedient. He thinks the whole process out, I believe. I think that's why Moses goes to great care to tell us about the preparation. Why do we care what they put on the donkey? Right? The climax of the story is that they're on a mountain and he's about to kill his son. I think the details at the beginning of the story are just as important as him not killing his son and being commended for the fact that he was willing to do it. 
I think it starts at the very beginning when he's intentional to be obedient, and it carries him through obedience for the next three days. It keeps driving him to be obedient. We talked about he had, he had reasoned about Lot and Ishmael, but quietly he submits regarding Isaac. Um, and there's no reason given for this. You'll remember, while he didn't give all the reasons to Abraham that I shared with you about Ishmael, he did tell Abraham, look, I'm removing Ishmael because Isaac is the promised son. So if nothing else, Abraham says, okay, I know that when I send my son away, Ishmael, it's because of the fact that God wants to do this through Isaac. There's no reason given for this. He's just simply told to get rid of Isaac, to sacrifice him. Abraham has to proceed in, a, in, a, in an act of faith and obedience without any type of explanation given to him. Abraham shows no signs of wavering throughout the account. Um, like I said, all the preparation is sign of faith. He had plenty of time to think, and it seems that his faith grows stronger in the journey. We don't see him wavering or, or backpedaling or trying to get out of this at all. John Calvin says, We pay him the highest honor when in affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce. Is that the way you say this word? Okay. Um, to his providence. Somebody want to explain that in words that we can all understand? I'm just going to tell you, I had to look up a couple of them. So I had to look up acquiesce just to make sure I understood it. What, what does this mean? We pay him the highest honor when in affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to his providence. Okay, yeah, we're trusting in his promises, his providence, the fact that he's in control, the fact that he's wiser than us. Um, we, we, we trust in those things in times where in our own wisdom, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't resonate. It doesn't connect. And we give him the highest honor possible when in times uh, that don't make sense to us, we are still turning to him and trusting in who he is, how he's revealed himself. That's when he gets the highest honor, and he gets that when other people see us doing those things. Right? The guys that come along, they also look around and say there's no animal. Right? They look around and say, we got all this stuff to make a sacrifice. We don't see an animal either. And I think when Abraham comes off the mountain, we don't have any account of what took place. I find it hard to believe that Abraham wasn't bubbling with joy because he's probably been discouraged for three days. I can't imagine that he didn't have a conversation with those two individuals about what actually took place on the mountain. We give God the highest honor when in affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless, in spite of all reason in our minds, we're continuing to trust in his providence. We should expect tests from God. We should strive for immediate obedience when we're in those situations. We should plan to be obedient when we can. Number three, we should focus on promises and not explanations. We should focus on promises, not explanations. Oftentimes, our immediate response to an undesirable circumstance is why. We look for explanations for God's perceived injustice in our life. I mean, that is the norm. That is the fleshly response. Something undesirable comes into our life. We lose a job. We discover a sickness. Uh, we, we, we lose an, uh, a loved one. Something undesirable pops into our life, and the first immediate response from, from even the best of Christians is, why? Why is this happening? What's the explanation for this? And a lot of times it's generated out of a feeling that this is unjust. This isn't right. 
This, this shouldn't be how it's playing out. Right? We shared not too long ago about the teacher here in Georgia that had worked at Snowbird who, who's out on a hiking trip with his wife and his friends, and he falls to his death. And you read the comments on the school website of these kids that have been forever changed by his ministry. I mean, he's the type of guy that you would die to get his resume if you're in my position as a principal. He's the type of guy that you want to come in and be a teacher for you. He's making an eternal difference in the lives of students. And you look at that and you say, why? Why would God take somebody that's being so effective? There's a whole lot of people that are being ineffective. Why doesn't God choose to take them and not the one that is, that is storming the gates of hell and rescuing people for his kingdom? Why? Why is his wife having to go through that? And that's typically our normal fleshly response to ask why and to look for explanations. And yet what we find from Abraham is that he continues to draw upon promises versus looking for explanations. When he's asked by his son, where's, this, where's, the, where's the burnt offering? Where, where's the animal? He says, God's going to provide it. He's drawing upon promises of God. When the two individuals that are, that are left behind want to go with him, he says, y'all are going to stay here. We're going to go worship. We're going to come back. He's drawing upon promises. He says, I know that Isaac has to make it through this. Hebrews says, he believed that if necessary, he's going to raise him from the dead. He knows that Isaac has to come through this, this situation with him. He's drawing upon promises. He's not looking for explanations. Why is God doing this? Why has God asked me to do this? He's focused on the promises of God. For us, rather than asking, how can I get out of this situation? Most oftentimes we should be asking, what can I get out of this? We'll see later on the purposes that God has so oftentimes for bringing trials into our life. Abraham believed that God's will never contradicts his promises. You remember, he's clinging not just to promises in general but a chapter before genesis chapter 21 verse 12 god assures him but god said to abraham be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman whatever sarah says to you do as she tells you for through isaac shall your offspring be named see i believe if nothing else abraham is clinging to that most recent promise As he travels for three days, he's got to, in the back of his mind, be thinking, he can't die. He can't die. He doesn't have a kid. He doesn't have a kid yet. See, it'd be one thing if Isaac had already married Rebecca and they already had a child. Maybe this is Isaac's time, you know? I only had one son. I had Isaac. Maybe Isaac's only going to have one son, and then I have to say goodbye to him. That would have made it a lot more difficult because then he would be in a situation that oftentimes we are. We don't know what God's going to do. We don't have assurance that God's going to heal from this sickness. We don't have assurance that God's going to give us another job that allows us to stay in the current house that we're in. He's clinging to an exact promise that's been given to him. And I got to think in the back of my mind, he's thinking, he's got to live. He's got to live. He's got to live. He doesn't have a child. He doesn't have a child yet. Abraham's demonstration of faith, a couple things I'm going to give you for your notes. First of all, He believed that both would worship on the mountain and both would return. When they finally reached the mountain, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. Rebecca. um, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey. Uh, The two men leave with him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you the way that the original is written the implication is we're both going over there and we are both coming back 
and he can't even mean that I'm bringing a corpse back with me because the sacrifice would have burned up Isaac's body. There would have been nothing to bring back. And so the implication is I fully believe that whatever transpires in the next hour, the next two, however long we're there, the results of that interaction with God will be that my son comes back with me. Abraham is demonstrating great faith here. Um, he's, he's, he's saying something that has yet to happen yet, but he's saying it with confidence and authority. Secondly, he believed God could raise Isaac from the dead. We don't get that from this narrative, uh, but through Hebrews chapter 11, insight from that author, we're able to learn what was really going through um, Abraham's mind during this time. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You could say that he really did get him back from the dead, because for three days he's dead to him. I mean, for three days he's the walking dead. He's he's traveling to a mountain, and and I I got to imagine... That while he's clinging to promises, it was not a joyous three days for Abraham. Um, in his mind, he's, he, even if he's going to raise him from the dead, think about the grief of actually having to watch your son die and then having to step back and really hope that the promise you're believing in is true, that he's going to come back from the dead. He doesn't know how it's going to transpire. It may actually transpire where he has to watch his son burn on that altar and then God resurrect him from the dead. So figuratively speaking, he does get him back from the dead. You may, you, may, uh, you may have ever experienced where, where you, you were anticipating something that's bad that's going to happen. Maybe, maybe you have a fear of shots, and you know that you have a shot coming up at the doctor's office, and so you're, you're a couple of days out, and like, it's hard to enjoy the days out because you're just thinking about what's coming in three days. And then the glory of finding out that you don't have to get the shot, that there was a mistake, and, and it's going to be pushed back, and, and it's almost like, man, I got, my, I got my days back. I can enjoy life once again because that thing that I thought was coming is no longer happening. I think that's what Abraham experienced. He didn't have to watch his son die, but figuratively speaking, he does get him back from the dead because in his mind, he's carrying through an act that he had fully every intent to do. He was ready to drop the knife on him. And God steps in and intervenes and prevents that from having to be the case. This is really the whole key to the story, I believe, what Hebrews tells us. The preparation and the journey allowed him to come to this specific conclusion and we've said how how great of a sign of faith this is for him because there was no prior resurrections to fall back on he's expecting something that for all practical purposes is impossible because he has no reason to believe that god has ever done this before um our trust in god should lead others to trust in god as well i think uh uh or let me uh third point he believed that god would provide an alternate sacrifice so Isaac asks, what, where, where's the animal at? Abraham doesn't give much of an explanation, doesn't tell him the, the when or the how. He just simply responds to his son that God's going to provide the lamb for the sacrifice. He says, behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both, both of them went together. I put in my notes here that our trust in God should lead others to trust in God as well. Isaac demonstrates great trust in his father, who is also trusting in his heavenly father. We don't know exactly how old Isaac is here. 
but he's old enough to where he had to consent to get on that altar. How do we know that? The guy's carrying all the wood, right? It says that he put all the wood on the back of Isaac um, as, 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 uh, as, um, as big as A.J. is. A.J. can't carry heavy things at this age. So a lot of times in the pictures, you see a, a really young boy. Isaac's of age where we can trust him to carry the, the heavy things for this trip. And, and, and Abraham's not getting any younger. He's really old. And so Isaac looks around and says, maybe, maybe he's starting to wonder. Maybe, maybe human sacrifice isn't a foreign concept for Isaac either. Maybe people that he's interacted with, he knows that this is a practice. And so he looks around and says, Dad, Dad, what, what, what are we doing here? Abraham says, don't worry. God's, God's got this. God's going to provide. And they get to the top of the mountain. God still hasn't provided yet. And so Abraham gets everything set up, and, and now the only thing left to do is to put Isaac on the altar. And, and Abraham's old, and, and so there has to really be a conversation that happens. Come here, buddy. I need, I, have to, I, I need to pick you up and put you on this. Or go ahead and get up on there yourself. And I think what's, what's awesome about this is that Abraham's faith is great. Isaac's faith at least is great in his father if it's not yet tied to his heavenly father. Abraham has been a dad in such a way where his son is willing to trust him with his own life. And that is a testimony to however Abraham was fathering his son. That he had been so clear in the things that he had conversed with his son about. And I think probably there was conversation about promises before he got up on that altar. I would imagine that Abraham is talking to Isaac and he says, Son, I love you, and you've got to know that I would never ask you to get up on this if I didn't trust that you were going to live through it. Dad, how am I going to live through this? You're talking about killing me. You're talking about cutting me open. You're talking about burning me. How am I going to live through this? Son, I don't know. I don't know, but I am trusting that God is going to provide because, son, time and time again, God drug me outside of my tent and told me to look up into the skies and to look at the stars and to look at the sand, and I'm supposed to have all these offspring coming from you, and as far as I know, you haven't, you haven't born a child yet? And he's like, right, like you don't have a child yet? Like you haven't been promiscuous and running around? Like you don't have something I don't know about because that changes everything if you've got a kid. I was just like, no, Dad, like there's not a child yet. There had to be some type of father-son conversation that would warrant Isaac allowing himself to be placed on that altar. And it's a, it's a great job by Abraham to not only be faithful on his end, but to communicate those promises to his son, promises that his son will then have to enact later on in his life. And I don't want us to miss that, that Isaac does play a key role in this. He's responding to the great faith of his father. We should depend upon God's prov uh, provision in times of trials and testing. That conversation takes place with wood on Isaac's back. I think you could also see a prefiguring there of Christ carrying his own cross to be sacrificed in our place. Abraham's response, again, to, to um, trust that God is being God and that God is going to do things his way. He's going to provide something for us, son. He demonstrates peace and confidence when he doesn't know exactly what will happen, simply that God alone will provide for their needs. Abraham believed that nothing was too hard for God. He believed that God was the great provider before God had provided in this situation. 
Paul draws upon this in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. When God has provided the ultimate sacrifice, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says, If the great creator of the universe gave his son for us and carried it all the way through, didn't tell Jesus to get off the cross once he saw that Jesus was willing to get on the cross, carries it all the way through so that he is dead for three days, and he gets his son back after three days, not figuratively speaking, how much more will he give us everything that we need if he gives us our greatest need, Paul says. The God who tests is the God who provides God tested Abraham, and ultimately God provides for Abraham here. He does pull Isaac off the altar. He does provide a ram in the thicket for him to sacrifice in lieu of his son. God provided for Abraham when he was where he was supposed to be. Notice he doesn't provide the ram at the base of the mountain. He didn't provide the ram back at home. Oftentimes God calls us to go through a trial, and oftentimes it's at the very last moment that he actually provides for us exactly what we need in the midst of the trial. We may anticipate trials that are coming. We may have things on our calendar that we know are going to be a trial for us, and we have to wait and wait and wait for those things to come. We have to wait for that specific day for us to specifically go through something difficult. You know, we've been praying for um, John and Whitney who have have a, a legal situation that they're going through, and it's been weighing heavy on their family. And it continues to get put off, and it stays on the calendar, and they know it's coming, and and they're in the midst of having a a baby here at any point now. And they're not going to see provision from God until they absolutely need it. And I think all these days leading up to this is an opportunity for their faith to increase. And John and I have talked about that in accountability. This is a chance for his faith to continue to be stretched so that it's stronger on the other side of this situation. And they can sit and and potentially be tempted to say, why, 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 when, when, when? And God says, you don't need it yet. You don't need the ram yet. We're not in court yet, right? It's not that day yet. It's not until the knife is about to drop that that ram is in the thicket. And I tend to believe that the ram doesn't magically appear in the thicket. I think the ram got up, and he was walking around, and, and it led him. God led him exactly where he needed to be at exactly the right time, and his horns were just big enough that year where he couldn't get through where maybe he had previously walked, and and he stuck, and Abraham looks up at the right time and sees him. God provided when Abraham was where he was supposed to be. If he'd waited three days to start this journey, the, the ram wouldn't have been there. He got up early in the morning, he loaded everything up, and he set off for Mount Moriah. God provided for Abraham when he actually needed it. Um... Hebrews fourteen or Hebrews four sixteen gives us the same assurance today that God will give us exactly what we need when we need it. Hebrews four sixteen. Uh, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But He doesn't just provide for Abraham. I think God provides for both Israel. And in the New Testament church in this situation, he gives us a clear picture of substitutionary atonement. See, Isaac's going to have to watch the ram die. He's going to have to say, for at least a few minutes, I thought that was me. And Abraham and Isaac, while they're rejoicing, they're still 
there's still the difficulty of killing an animal. I don't, I don't think any of us find pleasure, even of the, even of even those of us that enjoy hunting and fishing. We don't take pleasure. We don't take some type of weird pleasure in the killing of a, of a life. And so Abraham and Isaac would have still watched this animal die on the altar, and there would have been a connection that. It was supposed to be Isaac, and Isaac comes off, and now something stands in his place, and that helps build the understanding for when Israel comes out of Egypt, and there's laws given about sacrifices, and not just sacrifices to, to be given to God as an act of worship, but sacrifices that were meant to be a picture. You deserve to be here. We're letting something stand in your place, but it's still not sufficient, and it won't be sufficient until the Messiah comes. And Hebrews unpacks that for us in a great way about Christ putting an end to those sacrifices. And then lastly, number five, we should look forward to the results. As we go through trials, we can look forward with encouragement to the results, things that are accomplished through trials. And I'm going to give you uh, six specific ways real quick about what trials are designed to do for us as believers. First of all, trials are designed with a specific purpose. They push us to spiritual maturity. Abraham is a more mature Christian, a more mature believer in Yahweh as a result of this situation. James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials help complete things that are lacking in our life. They're designed for a purpose. They're designed to accomplish maturity in our life. Abraham's faith grows to a point where he can worship the great provider through sacrifice without reservation. Secondly, trials are designed to show our faith to be genuine. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I believe there was a great worship experience for Abraham and Isaac as, as the ram gets to take the place and, and he's naming the place after God and his provision, a great opportunity for God to get the glory that he deserves in this situation. Uh, trials are designed to show our faith to be genuine. According to uh, James chapter 2, this is a... Um, a partnership, our faith and our works, a partnership. In James chapter 2, verse 21, Was not Abraham our faith justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What we understand that to mean is that uh, we express faith in God, we believe in God, and then God calls us into situations where we have to show our faith to be true, and those works come after salvation. So we're not saved because of all these things we bring to God. We come to God in faith, and then he gives us opportunities to live out through the Spirit's power, opportunities to demonstrate our faith to be true. Abraham succeeds in this test. He demonstrates that he truly has faith in God. Um, trials are designed to protect us from sin. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about the, um, the thorn in his flesh that has been given to him, something that's not desirable, but something that he says keeps him from being conceited, allows him to be protected from that sin of pride in his own life. 
Trials are also designed to produce steadfastness and endurance for a believer. We've read that in several of these passages now. Obedient faith overcomes trials in our life. They're designed to produce steadfastness and endurance within us. They're also designed to give us a clearer picture of who God is. It's interesting to note that every time Abraham seems to come through one of these narratives, he's always naming God something. He's always attributing an action of God to him. He does the same thing here. He, he highlights the fact that the Lord is the provider. Uh, where we typically get the name Jehovah Jireh from, this passage, the God who provides, or you can also translate it, the Lord who will see to it. The Lord who will take care of that situation. The Lord who will provide for that situation. Trials are designed to give us a clear picture of who God is. When we go through difficulties, when we go through a time when we don't have the normal income coming in, then we certainly come out on the other side and we say, the Lord is the provider. When we go through a time of sickness and, and nothing seems to be working to bring somebody out of that sickness, we come out of that and we say that he's the great physician, that he is the Lord who heals. God gives us trials so that we can better understand who he is when he brings us through those trials and specifically meets needs that we have during that time. Lastly, trials are designed to show faith in real time for all to experience. Going back to Genesis. Here at the very end it says, um, Angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. This is not new information to God. This is not the first time he's, he's dialed into the fact that Abraham trusts him. This is God experiencing it in real time. This is him experiencing it, similar in the same way that Job says, I've heard about you, and now I've experienced you. I'd heard things about you, and now I was really forced to put those things that I have heard to the test. You've carried me through this. I now know you. I now experienced you. God is, God is highlighting the fact I'm experiencing now your faith and trust in me. Some implications, God tests the faithfulness of believers by asking them to surrender to him the best that they have. God tests the faithfulness of believers by asking them to surrender to him the best that they have. Abraham had surrendered the threat in the previous chapter, so God had said, hey, Ishmael's bad for you. We've got to remove him. Now, Abraham's being asked to sacrifice and surrender something that's good for him, a gift from God. There's some things that have to be cut out of our life because they're not healthy for us. They're not good for us. Other times, God asks us to sacrifice things that are good for us because he wants what's best for us, and he wants our best, and he wants to know that we're willing to, to give up what's best because we view him as best. We may be asked to sacrifice that which is dearest to us. Luke chapter 14, lest we think that we might not also be asked to sacrifice those closest to us. Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There's some that will have to say no to family and friends. And yes to moving, moving away from here to accomplish what God has for them there. 
Faithful believers are willing to give, to surrender the best they have to God, trusting that he will provide. See, there's some that are going to have to leave to go to Uganda. They're going to have to say no to a job that's good right now. And they're going to have to trust that God will provide at the end of this mission another job. And there, there is no assurance from our church that we can give that you'll have a job when you come back. You know, we can, we can try to guarantee that you've got three years' worth of expenses covered because of money that we've given and saved and put away. We can't line up jobs and housing situations and all that for you and, and, and remove any reason for faith. There'll be things that'll have to be sacrificed. And at the end of it, there will be people that will through experience, be able to say the Lord is the provider. Number three, God is most concerned about the heart rather than the actual sacrifice. God didn't need Isaac's body. God doesn't need our money that we're talking about for this Uganda mission. He wanted to know that Abraham was willing to give up his son. And when he is, he's allowing Isaac to be a living sacrifice rather than a dead sacrifice. We're called in in Romans 12 to, to... offer ourselves as living sacrifices, to be willing to give up and sacrifice whatever may be necessary to further his kingdom. And that will be the case for us as we continue to give to Uganda. There will be things that have to be sacrificed, things that have to be given up, or things that are not purchased in the future in order to send people out from our church. So our application question as we close today, what plans do you have for this year to ensure your understanding of God's promises will continue to increase in preparation for the trials that you will face this year. What plans do you have? So we talked last week, plans that you need to make to expose yourself constantly to God's word, growth plans for yourself with how to to encourage accountability with your accountability relationships here, how to increase your trust in God's promises. How do I ensure That as I face new things this year, that I am equipped with a deeper faith to experience those trials this year. Yes, we're going to grow our faith in the midst of trials, but there are things that I can do on this side of things to better prepare myself to react obediently in the midst of those trials. What plans do I have in place to ensure that my understanding of God's promises will continue to increase? Abraham comes through this. What leads him to get up early that morning and to cut firewood and to put it on the donkey and to head out for three days, it's all driven by promises. All of his responses are based on promises. We're coming back to you because I know Isaac lives. Isaac, God's going to provide something because I know you live. Abraham talking to himself, if necessary, God's going to raise him from the dead. He has to live. And when all reason gets thrown out, Abraham gives most glory to God, as John Calvin says, because in that perplexing situation, when the promised child is supposed to be put on an altar, God receives the glory because the greatest amount of trust is placed in him at that point. He's trusting in things that he's never seen before. These ashes are going to come back together into the form of my boy once again, if necessary. We both have to come off this mountain together. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for this story. Uh, We thank you for the truth that it communicates to us. Father, I know that that our people are going to go through various trials this year. Things that we're not able to anticipate right now. 
You're going to use situations this year to stretch our faith. God, I pray that we would be prepared to respond in immediate obedience to whatever you ask us to go through this year. That we would be uh, prompted by your Holy Spirit when needed. And that we would respond in obedience when being led by your Spirit. Even when it's difficult, even when it challenges us in the areas of our comforts. God, I pray that we would be challenged and encouraged by Abraham's immediate obedience to what you called him to do. God, I pray that we would be challenged in the ways that he planned to be obedient to you. That he didn't leave it to chance whether there would be firewood or not when he got there. That he made sure that he had everything he needed to be obedient to you when he got to that situation. Father, I pray that as as believers who are fighting sin, that we would examine when we're most susceptible to not being obedient to you, and we would plan in advance to have everything that we need to be obedient to you. God, I pray that that we would be willing to sacrifice for your kingdom. God, while there may be other ways that we're called to do this, I know that, that here in the context of our church, we desire to send people this year to Uganda to tell people about you, people that have been told wrong things about you. Father, we desire to go fix it. We desire to tell them about the great provider, one who provides not material things, but one who provides every spiritual blessing, one who provides the greatest substitutionary atonement that the world has ever heard about. Father, I pray that we'd be willing to sacrifice our finances so that others can go. And God, I pray that that we would be prepared for whatever trials you bring our way, that we, instead of asking why, would instead be ready to rely on the promises that we already have, trusting that your trials are for a specific purpose. They're meant for our good, and so we can approach them with all joy as you called us to. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.